It's Thursday, April 19th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, investor at large, Tim Hansen. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. We're actually taping this on a Wednesday because on Thursday morning, Dan Boyd and I are heading into Washington, D.C. so I can interview Jim Miller. So that'll be on Motley Fool Money. That's exciting. Very exciting. Very much looking forward to it. Dan loves to get out of the office. (laughs) Don't we all, (laughs) from time to time? Who among us, either here at Fool Global headquarters or just anywhere in the world, doesn't enjoy getting out of the office? Yeah, can you get some burgers? Get burgers anywhere? I don't know. We haven't talked about uh, possibly lunch because that. I think by the time we wrap up, you know what? We're gonna have to postpone this taping right now because Dan and I have to work on <laughs> our lunch plans. Um, no, so so we're at the front end of earnings season, and I'm curious, sort of, what you're watching this earnings season. But there are a couple of of things that have come up recently that I wanted to get your take on, and and the first one is Tesla because for the second time in three months, Tesla halted production of the Model 3. And I can't think of any CEO working today who works the spin better or more consistently than Elon Musk. Because somehow he's pretty good. He is turning this into this is a positive, this is why we're doing it. This is this Halt in production. Best thing that ever happened to the It's going to enable us to ramp up production. And just to put some numbers around it, the production goals for the Model 3 last quarter were 2,500 per week yeah. by the end of the quarter. Yeah. And by the end of the quarter, they were doing around 2,000. Yeah. So they missed. Came in light, not insanely light, but came in light. So from that point, now he's saying this is going to enable us to get to. Six thousand per week by the end of June, yeah. and I, you're skeptical. You look skeptical. I'm skeptical. Uh, uh, yeah, I would be skeptical. I mean, I am skeptical too. I mean, disclosure. I've disclosed this on this yes. program before. I have. I have Tesla puts, but yeah, the stock's up today on the news that you know by shutting it down, it's going to triple production. And I, you know, and 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 the reason they're going for six thousand instead of five thousand, which has you know rhymes with you know that old Spinal Tap gag, where it's like, well, why didn't you just this this amp goes to eleven? Yeah. Why didn't you just make ten one louder? They want to have a no, margin. This, oh, this goes to eleven. This goes to <laughs> this. Um, this gives them a quote margin of error. Margin of error. So in case you know the people in the supply chain can't hold up their end of the bargain. Um, in case they can't hire enough people to staff the factory twenty four seven. They've got margin of error, so five thousand is is going to make it. But you know what? I mean, I would, I guess, I would say, you know, put up or, or or shut up. I mean, the record sort of speaks for itself with regards to overpromising and underdelivering. And so we'll see. So recently, we have seen some large institutional investors sell part of their shares of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the wake of uh, everything that's gone on with Facebook and the data breach, et cetera. And I, I look at Tesla's stock price and I wonder at what point are, forget individual investors and you know, anyone's own opinion of what the near term future of this company and therefore this stock is. At some point, don't some of the institutions on Wall Street say, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. Well, it's a good question. It's a really good question. I mean, if you look at the shareholder data, it does appear that the largest, I think, aside from T. Rowe Price, 
the largest institutional shareholders have been net sellers of Tesla stock. And the reason that's interesting is because, um, obviously, Tesla has a very rabid retail shareholder base, um, a, a, you know, quite an enthusiastic insider shareholder base led by you know, Musk himself. And then you've got some, some big institutions, and there's well in index funds, too, right? Um, Tesla, by all accounts, except for Elon Musk, needs more money this year. And they have a couple of options with regards to how they want to do that. They could obviously you know, borrow more money. Debt, or convertible debt, has been sort of what they've been doing recently. I think the most recent was the straight debt issuance. But if you look at their capital situation in a rising interest rate environment, it, I don't think, you know, I don't think um, they're going to get a very favorable rate. And obviously, if they have a lot of debt at a high rate, it adds makes it that much harder to be profitable. Depending on where their stock price starts stabilizing, they may miss the the strike price of some of the convertible debt, which means they're going to have more money they're going to have to pay back. Which means it's unlikely I think somebody's going to want to do a convertible debt deal with them in the future. Which leaves the option of doing like another secondary offering of common stock into the market. Now, if you've got to raise you know one to two billion dollars of of stock, um, of cash through stock, you know you you probably can't sell it all to retail investors. To me, it's now you know obviously Elon Musk has been able to brush aside a lot of things that looked kind of fishy, but it would look kind of fishy if if Musk bought it all and propped up his own company again. Which means you've got to sell it to institutions, but institutions have been net sellers. Where who are you going to sell that stock to, and and what are the terms that they're going to offer? What price are you going to have to put on it in order to to raise the money? And so I think that's the big outstanding question facing Tesla and its shareholders over the next three to six months, and ultimately that's probably going to be the variable that decides whether or not my puts make money or not. Is do they have to do? Do they have to raise more money? And if so, what are the terms, and are they favorable or not? I want to get your take on another industry altogether, and it's one that we don't really talk about all that often. Wait, are we done with Tesla? We're done with Tesla, unless you have more. Oh, I just wanted to. Call. So he Musk did send a very, very enjoyable letter out to his employees, the email which has been now released online. Oh, I thought you were going to. Oh. Which included, among other things, plays to be more productive. My favorite, which I am adopting, and so if I get up and walk out of here, you'll know why. As soon as you think you stopped adding value in the meeting, he wants you just to get up and leave. <laughs> Which I am, I'm as much as much of a hard time as I give Elon Musk sometimes. Like that, I like that. That is a good one. <laughs> that is what I think. Dan just left the room, by the way. <laughs> oh, burn! <laughs> Years ago, I, I knew a guy who uh, did radio here in the D.C. area, and when he renegotiated or when he negotiated a new contract with the station, one of the thing he hated meetings so much that one of the things he had written in the contract was that any meeting he was re required to go to um, had to be done standing up. He just thought, "Let's, uh, I'm happy to go to this meeting, but everyone in the room needs to be standing." And his belief, and he was probably right, was, "Hey, if the meeting is standing, everyone standing is going to be a lot more efficient." Yeah. I thought you were going to mention the uh, the tweet that Musk had sent out directed at the Economist because the Economist m made a point. Uh, uh, along the same lines of you regarding the raising of money, yeah, yeah, and he just very um, 
directly took them to task, including calling the economist boring, um, which he he may be right on that one. But anyway, <laughs> basically saying like, no, we're we're not raising money this year. We don't need to raise money. We're not going to raise money. And to me, that's one of those like, boy, I really I really hope you're right on that one because that because you can from a communication standpoint, I feel like it's easier to massage misses on production goals than it is something as black and white as that. Yeah, but I mean, this is literally last Friday. Last Friday, he was on CBS this morning, giving the first ever like public media tour of the factory, and he said, or CBS reported that he said, um, you know, we've got all the kinks worked out, like it's all systems go from here. Not 48 hours later, they'd shut down the production line. Well, come on, I mean, they may have filmed that as much as a week <laughs> prior, so I mean, it... I mean, it's just it's a parallel. It's a, I mean, there was a Wall Street Journal article about all these um, uh, auto dealers, guys who like run auto dealerships, who just were um, kvetching about Musk's ability to live in an alternate reality where he's like able to advertise cars at prices that don't exist. And they were saying, like, if we did that, the Better Business Bureau would be all over us. <laughs> People would be coming after us <laughs> with, with torches and pitchforks. Um, let's move on to the banks because this was something that came up. Uh, uh, one of our analysts and I were talking about this recently. How we don't really talk about big banks on this show on Motley Fool Money. It's not really something that we do a lot of coverage of across our universe. I was looking at the Fool 100 index earlier today and saw that within the index, uh, somewhere just south of eight percent is financials. And my assumption is that within the financials. Uh, that's. I'm just going to throw one name out there. That's that's probably there. That's um, you know the visas and Mastercards and well, the, PayPal's. So those are actually classified as technology companies. Okay. Your, your financials in the full 100 are going to be Berkshire Hathaway, which is a big one, and then um, we have a couple of other insurers and like niche insurers like Markel and things like that. So why? But yeah, you, no, not not a lot of banks. Because it's not like teenage apparel. Which is an industry which just looks so terrible, such a uh, so filled with landmines for investors. If you bought a basket of big bank stocks five years ago, you're probably pretty happy with how you've done. I mean, your analogy is an interesting one because the thing that scares people about big banks is that they are so hard to understand and fraught with landmines. I mean, if you think about if you think about conceptually the business model of a bank, right? You um, take in deposits from people, and the deposits that you get are zero risk, right, to the people giving you the money. Um, not only are they they're, they're backed by the FDIC, of course, to some extent, but the bank too is pretty much on the hook for giving everybody their money back. And then the bank turns around, leverages those deposits, and then makes loans for Riskier stuff, right? <laughs> Whether it's you know if it's the bank, you know if it's Silicon Valley Bank, it might be you know real estate tied to startup companies, or if it's um, uh, you know re- uh, residential mortgages, commercial real estate, construction loans. Um, you know these are things that are not sure things. It's obviously there's a mismatch between the depo- the creditworthiness of the deposits and then the loans going out. And it's the, you know the joke there is that you, you sort of make it up in volume, right? Like you're not allowed to lend out everything. You're expecting to lose something, but you also don't lend everything out. And and obviously you get paid interest on the other side too. But it's a business model that is inherently 
uh, risky. And, and I think over the last five years, you've had a very benign environment with regards to interest rates and obviously a recovering economy that's meant that default rates <clears throat> on loans have been probably lower than they would be in a more normal environment. You know, to see what happens when banks blow up, right? There's a nice, you know, every what? Call it every 10, 15 years, you get some sort of mini financial crisis of some sort, whether it's savings and loan, the great financial crisis, housing, the internet bubble bursting, what it is, so on and so forth. And um, what's terrifying about that from a big bank side, and that's why I tend to traffic in my own investing in smaller, like community banks, tiny right? banks, tiny banks, where things are a little bit more straightforward. If you were to look at Wells Fargo's balance sheet or Bank of America's or any of them, you would see, you know, very nebulous categories of assets on their balance sheet, and you know, I think Wells Fargo has like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna ballpark these numbers. I don't know them all off the top of my head. I think they've got, you know, tens and tens of billions of dollars classified as other. <laughs> Would that we all had <laughs> tens of billions of dollars worth of other. other. What well, what is that? I don't know. Nobody knows. And so you know, you know. How are all these things tied together? How much exposure do you have? Like, you know, I'm not maybe Wells isn't directly exposed to the energy industry, but maybe they're lending to people who are exposed to the energy industry and so on and so forth. So you don't necessarily know how all those assets and liabilities flow through into the real world. And that unknown is what makes um, investing in big banks really, I think, really hard. But I think, you know, you alluded to probably a very good way of playing it, particularly in a low interest rate environment where you expect interest rates to rise and for a bank like Bank of America which has an incredible deposit franchise to do pretty well which is just you know buy buy a basket of them and if the whole economy turns like it did in 08 or 09 you're going to lose money no matter what you did uh, but don't necessarily take the risk on any individual name because knowing what specific exposures they have given the current regulatory regime is hard you can follow Market Fullery on Twitter you can follow all of us on Twitter Tim Hansen's on Twitter Dan Boyd is on Twitter heck I'm, yeah I'm on Twitter Dan will berate you <laughs> if you catch him at the wrong time, I think at least I enjoy following Dan Boyd on Twitter. But I will say this though, uh, I learned so much when Dan Boyd went to the um, gaming. What was it, Dan? Gaming convention with the figurines? He's not looking. He's, he's, he checked out. He walked out. Um, that was awesome. Yes, as did I. I was going to say, depending on how the Washington Nationals baseball team is doing, yep. that that informs big dependency. That informs uh, some of of Dan's tweeting. Uh, you can follow us uh, this show at Market Foolery. I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, Julia Robeson of Cheyenne, Wyoming, who tweeted a, just a, a fantastic photo of her four week old son, and she she wrote that uh, her boy finds Market Foolery, and these are his words, or her words, not his. Uh, Ours. Uh, he finds market foolery absolutely hypnotic. So it like chills out. So I don't know who our oldest listener is. We have a new youngest. I think we have the youngest dozen. Nice. Uh, the youngest of the dozens. Hypnotic. Uh, hypnotic. Um, what What are you? What is one thing you're watching this earnings season? It could be something you're curious about. It could be an industry, a company. Maybe it's Maybe it's the Tesla conference call. Um, I, I'm just curious what you're looking forward to. Oh, I'm all in on the Tesla stuff. I mean, that could be like a Netflix series at this point. Um, and then, and then beyond that, I, I, I would say, um, yeah, I mean, just to see how the market continues to react to, you know, w w the market expectations continue to be really high, but somehow stocks seem to pl continue to plow right through them. I mean, the Netflix earnings this week were remarkable for the sense that I mean, Netflix obviously is doing well in some respects, um, and people just, but you know, that stock has gone bonkers.
I think that's one of the things I'm going to have to ask Jim Miller is as Netflix market cap <laughs> continues to creep up towards Disney's. I think it's past it. I think it's surpassed. Is it past it by now? So. Oh, I wonder how. This week, yeah. I wonder how that's going over in. Uh, it's wild. In I mean, Bob it's wild, right? I mean, what? What? And how much longer can stuff just go up? I mean, there was a little bit of a blip in the first quarter. I think you know, SP. I think finished down one percent or something like that. But it just continues to roll. We shall see. Thanks for being here. Thank you, man. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on Monday.